May the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question that the lawyer poses to Jesus in our gospel lesson from Luke chapter 10 this morning. And we're told that this wasn't really a genuine question, but rather a question to test Jesus, to to trip Jesus up. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Right away we can see that the lawyer has some faulty reasoning and some presuppositions in that question, though. The question is, what shall I do to inherit He recognizes that eternal life is an inheritance, yet he still puts the words, what shall I do, in that same sentence. Two antithetical ideas at play here. As any one of us understands, you don't earn an inheritance. It's not a result of doing X, Y, and Z. An inheritance is gifted from the graciousness of the one who bequeaths it. And an inheritance usually has to do with relationship, which we will see really plays into Jesus' point. So the lawyer tests Jesus by asking this question. And in his usual way, Jesus plays the game that the Pharisees always played, and he throws the question back again to test the lawyer. Well, what does the law say? Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament Jewish tradition, you might know that the men would wear a phylactery on their forehead and on their left arm. And actually, when I was in Jerusalem in June, I was able to go and pray at the famous Western Wall right as the Sabbath started at 6 p.m. on Friday. And I think Dick and Annette even provided a picture of when I did that in the midweek update at some point. Anyways, I observe this same Old Testament tradition in place today as adults show their children how to put on what were called phylacteries. Phylactery is a, a small box wherein parts of the law were placed, written on small scrolls or parchments. And the term phylactery actually comes from the Greek, meaning guard's post. Its intent was that the law contained and written therein would protect the individual just as a guard posted at his station protects the city. And what we call the the summary of the law was one such guard post kept wrapped up in that nice little box. So as as the man asked Jesus the question, we can see Jesus in our mind's eye pointing back to the man's little box, to the phylactery, and saying, well, what does the law say? How do you read it? You should know this. And so the lawyer responds, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength, and love thy neighbor as thyself. To which Jesus says, Well, you've answered well, do it, and you shall live. But this wasn't enough for the lawyer, was it? Well, just who is my neighbor? If I have to follow that law of loving my neighbor as myself, well, then I need to know just who is my neighbor. I need some rules about this. I need some guidelines. Let's get technical here, Jesus. 
And of course, we use that term neighbor to designate the people living around us in our immediate vicinity. The word actually comes from the German for a near dweller. So we're not wrong in that regard. My neighbors are not your neighbors and your neighbors are not my neighbors. And we might loosen those constrictions a bit and consider those who we see on a regular basis and with whom we have a common bond as being a neighbor. Although living 10, 15, 20 miles apart, those in church who hold the same dedication to Christ, well, they're considered neighbors. They are dwellers near to our heart and to our mind. And this is most likely the way that the lawyer would have approached this term. Jews would have interpreted it this way. They would have considered the descendants of Abraham and those who did as they taught as their neighbors. And it's not wrong to think of it this way. But we must be aware that this mindset can easily and quickly switch from an inclusive one to an exclusive one. The lawyer's real concern wasn't about who fit into the category of neighbor as much as it was about who was not his neighbor. He broke the law that he had just recited to Jesus, and he knew he hadn't lived up to living his neighbor, loving his neighbor as himself. So he needed to, as the text says, justify himself. That's an important word and part of verse 29. The, the, men, the man went from trying to condemn Jesus to essentially condemning himself by his own answer of the law of God. And so now he goes on the defensive to, quote, justify, as the text says, himself. I mean, sure, he tried to love his fellow believers, his fellow rigorous Pharisees who confessed Yahweh, But he certainly didn't love the outsiders. He ridiculed them. He considered them unclean. He detested them. He was like the Pharisee that we saw a couple of weeks ago who prayed, thank God I'm not like this other man. So he needed to make sure that all those people were not neighbors. He needed the line drawn so he could exclude those people and would therefore be on safe ground as fulfilling the law. And some things never change, do they? I mean, don't we again find ourselves following in the footsteps at times of the lawyer and the Pharisees rather than in the footsteps of Christ? Instead of finding ways to draw people in, to have a a relationship, to be near dwellers, we often find reasons to exclude. They smell. They don't think like me. They talk too much. They're of a different culture. Even within the church, we find denominations saying that other faithful denominations are not neighbors in Christ. And the reason is not being because of important and essential doctrines. It's all an exclusionary mindset of what sets us apart from others. And the other night I met with Father Sufrido and with another clergyman who was translating for us. And we ended our discussion and Father Siegfriedo wanted to uh, add a joke that was apropos to part of our discussion that evening. And it's actually appropriate for this topic. He said, an older woman passes away and comes to the pearly gates where St. Peter greets her. And as he takes her on a tour, she notices that everyone is happy and everyone's singing, everyone's rejoicing and everyone's dancing. And as they walk along the golden path, suddenly everything becomes quiet. Everyone's tiptoe. 
Not a single word is spoken. And finally, the lady asked St. Peter, why the change? And St. Peter whispered back, oh, well, that mansion right there, that's where the Baptists are. And well, we have to be quiet when we pass by them because they think they're the only ones up here. Of course, you can change that joke to a number of different denominations or to any groups of people and still make it work. Revelation, however, certainly paints a wholly different picture than that joke. In Revelation, we discover a multitude of people from different tribes and different tongues all joining in perfect unity in the praise and the worship of God. And that's what we discover with Jesus. Jesus' mindset is different than that of the Pharisees and the very lawyer standing before him. Jesus draws people into relationship. Jesus eats with sinners and teaches them righteousness. Jesus ministers unto the lost and he leads them. Jesus reaches out to the unclean and he washes them. Jesus sought out the lame to heal them. Jesus steps across the line that rules and regulations draw, and he becomes neighbors to those who are often excluded. And the parable he tells to the lawyer shows exactly that. Jesus, through this parable of the Good Samaritan, as we call it, begins to open up both the lawyer's mind and ours. Paints a picture of a man traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And you may remember me telling you in previous sermons over the years that this was known in that time as the Bloody Way. It was a road that was 22 miles long that descends 3,500 feet along the way. It was a rocky and treacherous road. And there were robbers and thieves that would hide in the caves and wait for someone to pass by so that they might jump them and plunder their goods. And apparently that is what happened to the man of Jesus' parable. He was robbed, he was severely beaten and wounded, and he was left in the ditch for dead. And Jesus first says that a priest comes along. Now think about the imagery of the neighbor we've been discussing. A neighbor is a near dweller. And the way that Christ paints this is heightened by the contrast in the imagery. The priest crossed on the other side. He didn't come near at all. He didn't even come close enough to check whether the man was alive or not. He was the complete opposite of a near dweller. And so was the Levite when he crossed over on the other side of the road. I mean, at least he stopped, but he crosses over on the other side. The priest and the Levite had reasons, of course. They knew that they were performing functions at the temple and understood that touching a dead man would defile them. And they would be unable to perform their functions. So they didn't want to run that risk. Now note the contrast. The ones who were most especially to show compassion. The ones who were to embody God's mercy. They're more concerned about the law and their duties rather than the welfare of another's life. And Christ then speaks concerning the Samaritan. Samaritan was one who was an outcast from the Jews. They differed in their beliefs concerning where God was to be worshipped. And their ancestors are those Jews that intermarried with pagans. So needless to say, there was a lot of disdain towards the Samaritans. For example, in the Gospel of John, a Samaritan woman shows that they were not neighbors. Jesus asks her for some water and she responds, Why do you, a Jew, 
ask water from me, a Samaritan. So imagine the reaction, the gasp of surprise and disgust as Jesus presents this Samaritan as the one who stops and helps the man. But it's not that he just stopped and helped the near-dead man. He didn't just save the man from death on that day. He made sure that the man would be looked after until his full recovery. He puts him on his own donkey. He puts him or who puts out his own money. He sacrifices himself for the sake of the dying man. And I hope the wheels are turning in your mind there because it's a picture of Jesus. And then Jesus asks the lawyer, which of these three is the neighbor? And the lawyer answers, he who showed mercy on him. And Jesus says, go thou and do likewise. Now, I can imagine the lawyer walking away from this conversation somewhat befuddled and yet stubborn in his ways. I can envision him mentally thinking, go out, find someone who's almost dead, and give some money for his care. I mean, that's how a specific rule-oriented mind will see this. And some Christians even think that way. If I give the homeless guy in the corner five bucks, then I've earned some brownie points with God. But this isn't the point that Jesus makes. It's not about specifics. It's not about earning anything or even keeping the law. Our epistle lesson from Galatians says that the law is not the central aspect of the faith, but rather the promise of God as an inheritance. It's not about the do's and don'ts of earning something with God. It's about God's grace as he embraces us as his children. The lawyer asked, who's my neighbor? That's the exclusionary question. The proper question and the inclusive one that Jesus presents, however, is how can I be neighborly? How can I be a neighbor, a near dweller to another? St. Paul says this in Romans 15. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification, for even Christ pleased not himself. I said earlier that the lawyer's perspective was one of rules and regulations, but Christ's perspective was one of relationship. And this is why the Lord's Supper is so important and central to our worship and our Christian life. And I've said time and time again, It's because it's an important thing to understand. This meal is a covenantal meal. It's not about some magical thing. It's not about some systematic thing done to earn points with God. It's a relationship meal. It's a sacramental meal by which our relationship with God is renewed and it is strengthened. And as children of God, we are ensured of our inheritance. It's a means of his grace. When we partake of the body broken and the blood shed, we partake of the mercy that our Lord has upon us. He is our good Samaritan. Our burdens are carried upon his back. Our wounds are bandaged by his. And our restored health comes from the payment that he made for us on the cross. And when we arise from our kneeling posture as recipients of God's mercy, then we're able to go out and to do that which naturally follows. To love God with all of our hearts, 
with all of our souls and with all of our minds and to love our neighbors as ourselves.